Welcome back to the Known Pleasures podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to the music, culture and image of the post-punk slash new wave movement of the late 70s and early 80s. If you want to hear the full versions of the songs featured in this podcast, you can click on the Spotify link that will take you to a dedicated playlist for this episode. Now here's Patrick to introduce today's band. In the First World War, a lieutenant in the Austro-Hungarian army was wounded in action but survived. Bela Lugosi wasn't dead. Six decades later, four young lads from Northampton in the English Midlands wrote a song about the legendary vampiric actor's eventual demise. It would come to define a music movement and youth culture, the Goths, and kickstart the career of one of the era's most revered and reviled bands. A group that persistently divided the critics. To some, Bauhaus were brooding masters of edgy but elegant, choppy guitar rift, bass groove masterpieces that spoke to the pain they felt amidst an uncaring world. To others, Bauhaus were wallies. While the band's pitch-dark lyrics and highly-charged theatrics were just a bit too preposterous for some to swallow, over the course of four diverse albums and a host of memorable singles, vocalist Pete Murphy and his cohorts carved a substantial, high-cheekboned place for themselves in the post-punk firmament. That's very nice, Paddy. Um, I was just going to drop in before we get onto the band to say a very good friend of all of ours, uh, passed away last month very suddenly. He was an integral part of our youth. Um, had involvements with a lot of the bands that we all love or went to see around that time. And, uh, yeah, I just wanted to say this one's for you, John. Not a huge Bauhaus fan, but still, you enjoyed <laughs> these podcasts as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, we're all good friends of, of John and we'll all miss him a lot. So, Bauhaus, where does the Bauhaus story begin? Well, I guess we'd have to start in the um, more or less a hometown where they were all from, which is uh, Northampton in the English Midlands, I Midlands? think someone grim. once said. bit grim. Well, Pete Murphy described it as um, this desert, this dearth, this non-culture where nothing happens. So um, a big fan of, of so the town he, he was. Wasn't, he wasn't a huge fan. He <laughs> wasn't a huge fan of his hometown. <laughs> this is an ongoing thing because Andy Partridge didn't like uh, the town where he was from either. So. Yeah, Swindon. Swindon um, yeah. David Byrne was no big fan of Dumbarton in Scotland where he left uh, at the age of two. That's true. <laughs> yeah, so Northampton is kind of halfway between London and Birmingham, more or less. So it's kind of a little bit sort of neither one thing nor the other. And it was the cobbling capital of the Western world, mm. about 70% of the boots worn by soldiers in the First World War, British it soldiers. It still is a big uh, town for shoes, now that I think about it. Oh, okay. The best English shoes come from Northampton to, to right. this day, yeah, that are made there anyway, still made in England. Yeah. 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 A lot of the big brands. Yeah, and, and I think their local football team nicknames the Cobblers. There you go. So it's all connected. It's all about the feet. Yes, yes, that's right. But um, I don't think there's much to write home about Northampton itself, although the Spencer Estate, as in Lady Diana Spencer's resting place, is uh, about 10 kilometres or so away from Northampton, so... Oh, wow, and she was, a, she was a big Bauhaus fan. So. <laughs> she, yeah. And she loved shoes. <laughs> that's right. So... Yeah, she was a big fan until they went weird. <laughs> Wasn't a big fan of the fourth album, I heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll yeah, get to yeah, that, yeah. we'll get to that. So the sort of place that, that a bunch of glam punk fans might find inspiration in. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the interesting things is that, for a start, the rhythm section, Kevin Haskins and David Jay. Haskins. Um, Jay. Yeah, David J. Haskins. <laughs> they obviously knew each other from a fairly early age. And Being brothers. David J., the bass player, met Daniel Ash, the guitarist. They were at kindergarten together. So three of the four had met by the time they were, you know, four years old, which is unusual for a, for a band in itself. Mm. And the way that Pete Murphy first got involved was he was living out at a town called Wellingborough, a town of about 50,000 people. Again, about 10 miles or so away. It's a great story, isn't it? Wake mm. um, <laughs> me up when you're finished. <laughs> <laughs> I'm loving it. He was raised a Catholic and the best school to go to for him was in Northampton. So he ended up as an 11-year-old at this Catholic school with Daniel Ash. So the two of them met and they were just a couple of Catholic kids against the world. Glam-loving Catholic Glam -loving kids. Glam-loving Catholic kids. And when they all formed a band, there was this big divide, as far as Pete Murphy was concerned, between the Catholics and the Proddies. Really? Yeah, so, well, I'm not sure whether he was entirely... Well, he wasn't alone in that, but surely. No, they had a problem in Ireland, I heard Yeah, I think it was about. Ireland. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. There's other places, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, Pete Murphy's observation was, Daniel Ash and I were the Catholics and the other two in the band were the miserable, selfish Church of England heathens. <laughs> 
It sounds yeah. It sounds like he's pretty fair about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, the story, as I understand it, was the other three already had a band and, uh, and were trying to find a singer and kept you know, pestering Pete to get involved because he had mm. the right look. Was this the craze? Yes, yes, at the time it was. And, um, <laughs> it was all the rage. I don't know what Pete Murphy looked like at school, but I imagine he had the cheekbones and some sort of, you know, at being at the time that it was, some sort of look going on that kind yeah. of meant that this guy should be in a band. Whether he can do anything or not, sort of irrelevant. A bit like the Human League story with yeah. Phil Oakey. It's just, you know, you look yeah, right, yeah. so you should this, be in a band. This is a shot in the dark here, but I imagine he looked like Bowie. I reckon, ah. well, <laughs> given as we're saying, there were big Bowie fans, big T-Rex fans. Yeah. I've um, heard he was a portly, round-faced lad. <laughs> he lost 20 kilos quickly to become the lead singer. Uh, what, what year are we talking about? So they knew each other for a long time, but that Bauhaus weren't formed until 78. Apparently the Crays uh, were playing around Northampton in 78. But without him, without but, Yeah, but without him, yeah. Mm. They're also known as Jack Plug and the Sockets at a certain, <laughs> certain time. Okay. And, uh, yeah, Pete saw them play and he thought they were terrible. Even though he knew them, he was friends with them. Well, he could sense that the rhythm section of Jack Plug and the Sockets were heathens. Right. So but they could I, hold down a beat. <laughs> Despite right. that. Mm, that's right. Right, right. But, uh, yeah, I think at a certain point, Daniel Ash and Pete Murphy decided, you know, because they were mates, they'd lost contact a bit, but then the three non-Pete Murphys were at art school together and Pete was working um, as a bookbinder or something. So Daniel Ash and Pete Murphy decided to get together one weekend, see if they could write a couple of songs, and they apparently came up with half of the first album in the space of a weekend of writing songs. Wow. Mm, okay. So something so, clicked pretty quickly. Mm, mm. So then they all decided to form a band called... Bauhaus 1919. Mm. And why was it called Bauhaus 1919? Well, there's, there's an artistic and architectural movement of the late Weimar Republic Germany. Mm. In, Around uh, about 1919. 1919 to 1933. And you might ask why it ended in yeah, 1933. Well, there was, there was a little matter of a Nazi party's rise and they weren't big fans of things like this. So they kind of put a... a Pretty quick stop to any of this nonsense. So Did they have something in particular against the minimalist overtones, the stylistic bent? I think they just had there was good art and bad art and there was nothing in between. So this just didn't fit with... And it was part of the Weimar thing, which they were very much against anyway. So, the, yeah, it pretty much died a, a death in 1933. But very influential movement to this day and uh, in, certain, yeah. in terms of architecture anyway. Mm. But apparently the band just... I don't know why they chose the name for their own band because they said it had nothing to do with their sound, but obviously there was some sort of starkness about what they were trying to do because it, it reflects that sort of look. It was very... Um, uh, <laughs> Choose your words carefully. No, I was going to say minimalist and I thought, no, I've already used that word. Come but on, use um, it, again. it was it was it, it was quite spare. Black and white. There was no... nothing overly flashy. Mm-hmm. Um, is it form and function or form over function, whatever yeah, that is, the, yeah. the, the so whole premise In fact, in it. stark mm. contrast to a style you might describe as gothic. That's a good point. That's right, yeah. The term gothic hadn't been thrown around at that time particularly. I, I think that someone had called the Doors gothic rock early, yeah, in, early yeah. in, in their career and maybe Joy Division had been referred to just the themes behind mm. the sort mm. of, you know. You know in a review or two, maybe Joy Division had been called Yeah, uh, dark, you know, all that sort of thing. As a bit of a reaction to what had happened, I think I read somewhere with punk, it sort of went a couple of different ways when the first wave of punk finished. There was sort of the, the oi sort of skinhead kind of thing went one way and punk's not dead sort of thing. Yeah, there were a few and, sort and of, what, about, about 978 or something? Yeah. and then so After and then, the first wave of punk. Yeah, and so, and so the sort of more Bowie-influenced people, the more the people that like the dressing up part and the kind of slight glamorous part of it, that didn't appeal to them at all. That kind of knob-headedness, kind of violent side of it didn't appeal to them. So they wanted something else that kind of kept a bit of the fun and a bit of the, the kind of energy that punk had mm. but kind of dress it up in a different look. Mm. So I think you can see that there's a strand there that punk went two different ways and Bauhaus was certainly going the other way. Yeah. Away well, from shaving your head and sort of shouting and stuff. Well, for a band like Bauhaus, who are considered to be just about the ultimate goth band, it's funny that the term, they were quite late on the scene mm. compared to other bands who are considered to be the archetypal goth bands like Susie and the Banshees and The Cure, who were already two or three albums in by the mm. time Bauhaus arrived on the scene. I think you'd call the first Susie album, The Scream, certainly the very early sort of seeds of goth. I think mm. that's a fair call. And Joy Division too. I don't think The Cure's stuff was at that point, maybe later. No, it was, was. more. it was maybe more the look. Yeah, yeah. But that's what I'm saying. It was a reaction against mm. that stripped down 
way some of the punk scene went. There was sort of like a splitting. And it was also a bit of a reaction against kind of the new pop sounds that were coming out that were kind of yeah. clean and bright and cheerful, which a lot of post-punk bands also went into. And the goth movement certainly rejected any of that. It was all black and stark and yeah, depressing yeah. And, and moody and generally mm. slow. Can I ask you guys, uh, when you first heard of Bauhaus, like was it a single or an album? Or? I first heard Bella Lugosi. It would have been on Triple Z in Triple Brisbane. Z. Yeah. Um, because... It kind of fitted in with what I liked at the time. It kind of had a bit of a dubby feel, which was quite strange, considering mm. they're not really known as a dubby mm. band. That's what made it stand out, wasn't yeah. it? It was, it was yeah. like there was all this um, delayed drums. Well, and the reggae kind yeah. of drumming. It was a very simple song. We should probably take a step back to the actual recording of the song. And, uh, well, you know, like the, I was going to say that's said, the first point that said, I yeah, came I mean, that, across. That, them, yeah. That's the extraordinary thing about Bauhaus. They'd been in existence for a matter of weeks <laughs> and they go into a recording studio, funnily enough, in the town, the small town back in Pete Murphy's small town <laughs> that he left to go to the, to the big Catholic school, Wellingborough. It was Wellingborough, that's right, yeah. Ten years earlier, a young lad called Tom York had been born in Wellingborough. He would never amount to anything, though, would he? No, no, that's right. No, nothing. Whatever what, happened to that guy? That's what Mr and Mrs York said. Oh. <laughs> and, yeah, they go into the studio with this sound engineer who's in his 50s. Mm. He's mainly worked with show bands, comedy acts. Well, that explains how the song came out. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. He's worked with Frank Pretty Ifield. Pretty funny. Well, the thing, Frank Ifield. The story I read is they basically wrote it and recorded it. It was probably about the third or fourth time they'd ever played it. Yeah, that yeah. When, when they recorded it, it was pretty much we've just mm. come up with this thing, here it is, and we don't really know what we're doing, and that's that. Yeah. That's our song. Yeah. This kind of ageing, certainly in, in you know punk terms, sound engineer says, well, I've worked with a couple of reggae bands. I've got this delay unit you might want to have a bit of a play with for the drum sounds. And indeed they did. And indeed they <laughs> did. And um, So we're talking 1979 here. Yeah. But this is also around Unknown Pleasures, for example, which was... Ex- Exploring similar drum mm. delay effecty kind of thing. Yeah, so yeah. I think that they may have been aware of that, given that they're just a little bit later than a couple yeah, of these yeah. seminal bands. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think they would have been against that. No, but it's funny that the song is considered to have these kind of reggae overtones when mm. it's actually a, a bossa nova beat. Mm. And well, the police were doing similar things too. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> this so, was um, at Beck Studios in Wellingborough. And if you go to the Beck Studios website, they're still trading on this quite a lot. I think well, so were Bauhaus. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think um, if you go to their Facebook page or whatever, it's like uh, Bauhaus are touring 40th anniversary of the album recorded here sort of thing. So, so they did the album as well? Yeah. Uh, actually, they, they, I think they did an album later on. Oh, yeah. but, okay. uh, but Bella Lugosi was recorded there. That was the, right, which was the first thing they did, and yeah. which kind of came out of nowhere and kind of topped the independent mm. charts for about two years or was certainly in the charts for yeah, a long, yeah. long time. Mm. Um, and so the subject matter, once again, gets back to this goth thing. Who's, who's singing songs about an ageing actor who, who played Dracula? Like, where did that come from as, a, as sort of a song, you know? Yeah, How many yeah. bands were writing yeah. songs like that? There was a particular kind of synergy whereby it was kind of a, like a dark-sounding music. It was a lyric about vampires. It was the right song at, you know, on the right day, if you mm. like. And Simon Reynolds in his Rip It Up and Start Again, History of, of Post-Punk, describes the song as ground zero for goths. Mm. And I think that's a pretty good description. Mm. I think it's where it all came together because they looked a certain way, the music sounded a certain way, the subject matter was a certain thing, it was very sparse and dark. So all of those things kind of became something that maybe had just been floating around independently. Because like I said, Susie had been doing that sort of stuff. Uh, the sound wasn't exactly unheard of. Other people mm. had experimented with dub and yeah. delayed drums and so on. But all of those th- things coalesced into this perfect moment, which still sounds great now and it's so simple. Yeah, song. yeah. It's yeah. Un- unbelievably simple but still so catchy. Yeah, and the idea that no one at any point said, is nine and a half minutes too long for this single? Mm. Which is beautiful because it gives the song every chance to just... To breathe. Mm. Mm. Well, I think that's, as I'm saying, a reaction against where the other strands of punk had gone into three-minute songs of loud, fast stuff. This was the complete opposite of all of that. Yeah. Which which was a far more interesting way for post-punk to head. Yeah. And I think because they were a little bit late, 
on the scene. They weren't so hardcore about the punk elements. Mm. Now, they were huge fans, obviously, of glam, which we'll get to. And so, you know, they were they were fairly open-minded, I think, about their influences. They were like several of them loved reggae. Mm. So the reggae, the glam, the punk influences, and also the kind of DIY thing of we're in this studio. The engineer has said, here's this analog delay, you know, go crazy. Mm. And, you know, I'll be back in three hours' time and see what, see you've, what done. you've done. See what you've done. And that's where the magic came from because mm. it wasn't the kind of George Martin, you know, early Beatles situation where, you know, the professor was in the room, you know, telling the kids what to do. Mm. No. Well, I think the ground was laid for something different, something interesting. And I don't think they were too late to the party in 79 in the scheme of things. It's, no. Things were moving very fast then anyway. So mm. I think it was, it was perfect timing. So then we were in the realm of the flat field. Well, they did release a couple of singles before. Well, that. this is what I'm saying. Non-album yeah. singles, which they really yeah, liked the, to this, do. We've spoken about this before. A hallmark of, of post-punk is uh, releasing singles that weren't on albums, and they released two. Didn't yeah, they? dark entries and Terror Couple, Kill Colonel. His eyes were heavy. He carried a card. One couple questioned the others discharged. They also released Telegram Sam before oh, in the yes. flat field with Mark Bolt, T-Rex cover, which is a great song. I, I yeah. love the original and I love their version of it. Yeah, it's yeah, very um, faithful. Yeah, um, which yeah. once again would have been a little bit uncool to do, I should think, in in 1980 to release a T Rex cover, wouldn't it? No, not really. But I wouldn't call that a faithful cover. Like really? I reckon Ziggy was a faithful cover. Okay. Um, mm. Telegram Sam was. It's kind of edgier and darker. Yeah, okay. But is even, it the same tempo though? I will play them back to back. Once again, I just think it's an interesting move to pull yeah, that out. Yeah. And it doesn't really fit with the goth thing either. So, no, no, that's but right. But then goth hadn't really been defined at that point, so maybe fair play to them. It was just we, we like this song and we're going to do a cover of it, so here mm. it is. Um, but they, all of those singles were in 1980 before. Actually, Tele- Telegram Sound was just after In the Flatfield. Oh, was it? Okay. Well, yeah. uh, In the Flatfield came out in October 1980 mm. on 4AD, which was one of the you know seminal post-punk labels of Moody goth yeah. music, yeah, if you yeah. like. Mm. Uh, I can't think off the top of my head who else there. Maybe Cocteau Twins? Yeah, Cocteau Twins. Um, what? Dead Can Dance, Dead were can they dance. on there? Yeah, lo- lots this of bands. This Mortal Coil. Yeah, lots those, of black and white, bands. lots of mm. shadows and, and this mm. sort of thing. It had a very strong aesthetic about yeah. what they were doing. Um, and what was the first ever album release by 4AD? In the Flat Field. Is that right? Mm. There we go. Yeah. And it has to be said, it didn't really make much of a splash, did it? Number 72 on the UK charts is no, hardly no, setting right. the world on fire. But That's right. I reckon I can say out of the three of us, I was the only one that bought it. No, um, no, I got it. Did you? I bought it. Okay. I can safely say that I'm the only one out of the three of us who didn't. Okay. Well, now that I've been corrected I on actually that have thing. it on vinyl, but can yeah. I just say, I've, um, I've spoken before about uh, a punk band in Brisbane called The Young Identities that were friends of mine. Um, they played a kind of... Buzzcock style, fast, snotty punk that was uh, sort of typical of the times. And uh, they asked me to come and play piano and syndrome on, uh, on, on something they'd recorded. The moment you'd been waiting for. Yes. To <laughs> combine your two I, passions. I, I got the call up, <laughs> but uh, they didn't want me to play guitar, but anyway. And when I listened to them, all of a sudden it was much darker. The singer was singing in a deep... Theatrical um, way. Yeah, theatrical, mm. baritone way. And uh, I was like, wow, you guys are different now. And they were like, oh, we're big fans of Bauhaus. And I didn't know who they were. They told me in the flat field, the album had just come out. You should listen to this, it's really good. So these guys had picked up the ball and run with it because uh, they pretty much turned on a dime. Mm. So I went and bought the album from Skinny's, was it? Rocking Horse? No, it was was Skinny's, I think. And yeah, I I loved it. And uh, I was saying to Patrick before that I'm not as big a fan of it now as I was back then. That that may have been something to do with seeing it played in its entirety recently, but we'll talk about that later. (laughs) I I loved it when I first heard it, and I don't know why. I think the cover is something really stunning, and maybe that's what Mm. appealed to me. Um, I enjoyed it from the start. I don't know why. I, I liked Bella Lugosi, and that would have been all I'd have heard of it yeah, um, yeah. at that point. Um, and I would maybe Telegram Sam. Uh, it's interesting to note that all their four albums were self-produced as well in this period. Which is pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. But just from the very sort of opening of it, you know, you've got 
to me anyway, a bunch of songs like Double Dare. Those songs were quite distinctly different from anything else that I'd heard at that stage anyway. Like it was still guitar based rock, but it was very sparse and very yeah. theatrical and kind of riffy still. Mm. But I don't know. I don't know anything else that was out there at the time that sounded like it. I, I loved it. You don't think um, Susie and the Banshees' first couple of albums it was less noisy than than their stuff. I don't know. I, so some of the Susie stuff I found a bit hard work, whereas this seemed. I wouldn't say it was poppy, but it was pretty easy to like. Um, and you know, Pete Murphy's a great frontman, a great character, and he looked great. That probably had something mm. to do with it as and well. And I think Daniel Ash is, is a, a great guitarist. Um, I don't think what he was doing was revolutionary, but um, no. He was doing a lot of that scraping the pick across the strings and the, mm. the working with harmonics. It wasn't noisy, but it was kind of interesting. But it fits within that style of the guitar at the time, like Keith Levine was doing and, mm. and who John McGeoch from Magazine. Different guitarists were experimenting with that sort of sound, that sort of slashing sound, but it was high and interesting and atmospheric, and he certainly did a lot of that on this album. You mm. you, you didn't hear it at the time though, Patrick? Uh, no, I would have heard a couple of songs here and there on, on Melbourne radio, but uh, listening to it, because we have in recent times seen Pete Murphy and David Jay from the band. Half the band. Performing the album in full. Mm. I've listened to the album pretty kind of closely, mm. and I find it a bit disappointing actually, compared mm. to the direction that I might have hoped the band was going to go in after Bella, Bella Lugosi. There's less of that spacious, mm, dubby-sounding yeah. stuff. It's a bit more conventional post-punk guitar rock. Yeah. It's still pretty interesting, but it felt a little bit regressive to me after even something like the Terror Couple Kill Colonel single, which was quite kind of spacious and weird. It's very weird, and I don't know why it's a single. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> to this no. day. Yeah. It's not particularly catchy. But that is quite kind of groove-oriented and kind of quite kind of open in terms of the, the production, mm. uh, whereas this album felt a bit more conventional. Right. I still think songs like Spine, The Cab and Sigmata Mata, those songs are kind of exploring different mm. territories sonically and even yeah. lyrically. Like, you're really getting into this kind of what the essence of goth is about, these yeah, religious yeah. images. Stigmata Mater, yeah. for instance. Yeah. Which I'm guessing that perhaps his Catholic background came... Something to do with it. ...came into play there. Mm, with God his, in an alcove. Yeah, yeah. In Dark Entries. Dark Entries. Well, that's, yeah, well, we <laughs> can't go into that. Well, at a certain point in Stigmata Mater, he's um, singing in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit in Latin. In Latin, that's right. In Latin. But I have to draw attention to his poor grammar. So I don't want to go on Monty Python here. <laughs> but Too late. He does use the dative. Which is? Which is uh, in nomine patri, he says, when it should be in nomine patris. Not the dative, not the dative. It should be the genitive. So, nomine patris. Unforgivable. So, of the father, not to the father or for Tell the your father. Brisbane mates that one, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> they may rethink everything. Yeah, many yeah. a pub punch-up I got into in Melbourne, the Melbourne independent music scene, you know, yeah, at the Seaview Ballroom. That's, you, that's you the kind of thing that could, those that could start a ruckus. And then leave. Um, <laughs> can, I, can I just point out that when this album came out, there was a general kind of shift in, in the music scene. NME was really championing a lot of these bands that were maybe loosely grouped together. And Killing Joke, one of our previous podcasts, was sort of grouped in this as well. They sort of picked up what bands like Public Image and so on were doing and, and taken it to a new direction. But Susie and the Banshees were certainly the, the forerunners. But then you had Sex Gang Children, if you remember them. Mm -hmm. mm. A birthday party, our own Australian birthday party, was certainly exploring similar ground. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, Joy Division, The Cure. But Southern Death Cult yes. are the interesting ones. that they, they picked up a lot of similar kind of imagery um, and went on to become Death Cult. And then, of course, the, the cult. <laughs> and it had a huge success in America with a completely opposite sound. They became ACDC and Led Zeppelin. But be, prior to that in 1980, they were one of the coolest bands in, yeah. in the world, front covers of the NME and independent mm. hits and all that sort of thing. But these bands were all very much grouped in towards that sound, which hadn't really been given a name, but it was, it was called Positive Punk. At the time. Really? Yeah. Really? That was because the actual term. I, I, well, well, was, I wouldn't have called it positive. Well, it was a generic term for bands that were, as I said, weren't going down the punk's not dead 
oi yeah. skinhead route, which Market. probably didn't have much crass. impact here. Well, you crash the anarcho punks and all that sort yeah. of other stuff. Was punk has led us down. Where do we go from here? Mm. Which is why we do this podcast. Where does it get interesting, and what mm. sort of other things can we do? Yeah, and these yeah. these bands were all looking into these other areas, I suppose. Mm. So anyway. That well, was 1980. Yeah. Well, I suppose when I think of what else was happening at the time of In the Flat Field, Susie and the Banshees had just recorded Kaleidoscope. Oh, okay. And it was more joined hands, me, but you're probably that right. Feels, no, 1980, yeah. Yeah. To me, that feels like, okay, this is a really interesting new direction. But they had two albums under their belt yeah. by that but, stage. Yeah, so, yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure. But In the Flat Field feels a little bit flat in comparison to something like like Kaleidoscope, which mm. is, okay, well, this is where music what is What had the Q done up. in 1980? And Joy Division had done Closer mm. that year, which is pretty gothic. 17 seconds. Way. 17 seconds, yeah. okay. That's sort of pretty, still pretty down, pretty gloomy. Yeah. If yeah. we can use that word. Gloom rock. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but where do we stand on In the Flat Field then as an album? Graham? Well, once again, I loved it at the time, and I'm a big fan of Bella Lugosi's Dead, but I'm talking about at the time, yep. Dark Entries, that St. Vitus dance. St. Vitus. St. Vitus, uh, Stigmata Mata, and God in an Alcove, they're probably my favourites off the album. But as I said, I'm not as big a fan now as I was back then. And Paddy, you never really heard it at the time, so you're a bit like, what's, uh, what's the fuss well, all about? Well, I was, I was pretty familiar with the kind of songs that were on the album. Right. I think it's okay, but it was kind of what I was expecting it to be. And, you know, I think there was a quantum leap to the next album. Well, before we leave, before we yes. leave this first album, I should say that it had a huge impact, this first album in America, on a lot of different bands. Uh, who went on to subsequently do a lot of things like your Nine Inch Nails, Pearl James, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Lots mm. of interviews I read with bands. Soundgarden. Soundgarden, who came out of that era reference in the flat field. Mm. Talk about Bauhaus, talk about that album as something that they went, this is a direction that we could go in. And I think it's because America was a couple of years behind punk. So by the time mm. this came out, this may have been their first, one of their first exposures to what was happening in England. And so they probably found this more interesting than a lot of the stuff that had actually come prior to it, like the Clash or the Sex Pistols or the Buzzcocks. Yeah, yeah. So these yeah. guys would be probably around our age, and so these bands were like a big influence on them, rather than the actual punk bands. Mm. So this album was a, was a bit of a landmark for a lot of people. For yeah, yeah, worse. absolutely. Yeah, but we'll take that as a three stars. <laughs> out of five, then. Three out I of think five. three stars. Look, I, I still love it, and I, I still can see why I like it. But maybe it takes me back to being. 15 yeah, or 16 yeah. again, which is so entirely this, possible. On this next album, mm. they moved from 4AD to Beggar's Banquet. To the bigger playing field of Beggar's yeah, Banquet. Yeah, yeah. Who else was on Beggar's Banquet? Gary Newman, Newman, was, Newman yeah. was the big moneymaker for them. Gaz mm. was bringing in the big bucks. But I would like to say, in the midst of talk of In the Flat Field, that um, one of my favourite Bauhaus songs was from around that era, mm. uh, albeit that it's a, it's a cover, a Rose Garden Funeral of Swords. Is that a cover? Mm. Is that right? Because that is a great track and you don't find that on anything other than like the singles remastered. Yeah, yeah. Was it like a B-side of one of those singles? Yeah, that album has all of their singles and B-sides and mm. that, it's a B-side of one of them and I don't know which Yeah, one. yeah. It's a cover version of a John Cale song. Yeah, right. But the weird thing is that John Cale, I think had only recorded it a few months before Bauhaus did. So you think of John Cale as you know, like a, it's got to be like late sixties, early seventies if it's mm. John Cale. But no, he was. Of Velvet Underground, just in case yeah. anybody doesn't know. That's more the kind of thing I, I think that I would have liked Bauhaus to have on in the flat field. Well, they were a big band for doing non-album singles, and the singles were pretty much one after the other killer. You know, yeah. songs and that, but they never put them on the album. So maybe yeah. you'd I'm be really better off buying a compilation album of singles. The singles, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you preempted my conclusion about Bauhaus, which is that they were a great singles band. Mm. Well, that should come at the end. Oh, yeah. I'll say that at the end as well. <laughs> okay. So, Graham, make sure you cut this out. I'll edit that in towards the end. Okay, uh, shall we go to Bauhaus releasing Kick in the Eye? Well, um, yeah, which was yes, March. No, the next single, uh, which was 1981. March 81. And this is a distinct change for them, I think. This is a funky, funky song. I mean, I think I heard this in in a nightclub or two that I was frequenting mm. at the time. May have shaken a, a leg to it even. Well, I'll, can I just say that this is my favourite Bauhaus song? I, I don't doubt I, that. I know we're not at the point where we're saying what our favourite song is, but uh, I love Kick in the Eye. Kick in the Eye. 
it's a great song, and the, there's two mixes of it. I think one of them slightly better. The single mix is better than the album mix. Mm. If you're going to put that in, um, Patty, where yeah. do you stand on kicking the? Well, I love this song. It's kind of peak Bauhaus, I think, really. Yeah. And the groove is there. The kind of edge is there. Nonsensical it's, it's lyrics. The nonsensical. That's my favourite thing about it. Yeah. And it's got the kind of darkness, but also a little bit of fun. A little bit of a. I well, mean, you, the, can, you can dance to it. So how dark can it be? Yeah. The bassline, classic bassline. A lot of people have used that kind mm. of thing, and uh, it's danceable. <laughs> I bought this when it came out. I liked it that much on the mm. seven inch. And did that pre uh, come out before the album or at the same time? B- before, I think. Before, did it? yeah. Okay. Uh, it didn't do anything majorly in the charts as no, most no. Bauhaus singles didn't. Fifty nine, I think, off the top of my head. Yeah, something like that. I think yeah, fifty nine, fifty eight. Yeah, fifty seven and a half yeah. on a good day. Um, <laughs> but the actual album that was it came from Mask, which came out in October eighty one, is my favourite of their albums. I don't think that's any surprise because it's kind of where everything. Yeah, became coalesced. I was going to say coalesced, but I thought Mm. I'd leave that to you. (laughs) It's the sort of thing Graham would say. He'd love that. (laughs) No, I think it's a great album. There's pretty much not a weak track on it. I mean, I made a list of the tracks on it that I that I like, and it's pretty much just one after the other. Um, Passion of Lovers was also a single on that. So that's maybe my Bauhaus favourite. That's a great song. It's a mm. great song too. And that's you can see the influence that that's had on a lot of people as well. Did you guys um, like Of Lilies and Remains? Um, it, I like every song on there, that There's just a little bit of talking at the beginning. Yeah. But I, 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 I don't well, know why, but I love it. I think I'm not sure that I'm down with them in terms of remembrance of Clancy. Ah, you're not a big um, fan of like Clancy? I'm Banjo Patterson? you that, got a problem yeah, with Banjo Patterson? <laughs> I'm not that fussed about Clancy either way. I mean, I loved Skippy. <laughs> <laughs> I will climb this high wall in remembrance of Clancy. You can drop the guitar bit in here if you want to, Ram. No, yeah. no, no. <laughs> um, I think Passion of Lovers. Lisa uh, Goddard, Clancy, are you with me? I'm with you. Okay. In Fear of Fear okay. is I'll a stop, great. I'll stop with that, except to say that she time. married Alvin Stardust. Uh, again with him. Really? Are we back mm. on him already? Mm. Oh, we're back on the glam, which is yeah. Cool. yeah. That song uh, mm. of Lilies and Remains came about because David J woke up one morning when they were recording the album, went into the studio and had to write down a dream that he'd had the previous night and he turned the piece of paper over and Pete Murphy had written something. So he, he had written something on a piece of paper that wasn't blank, basically, and he said to Pete, what's this? And Pete said, I had a dream and I had to write it down. And those two dreams are part one and part two of Lilies and Remains. So the first part, the spoken word part, is yeah. David J's dream. <laughs> And the singing part in the second half is Pete Murphy's dream. That's how you make a song. That's right. That's a collaboration right That's a collaboration. That's how easy it is. You just (laughs) have productive dreams and... Away you go. Riches will be yours. I don't think there's a weak song on here. No. I really enjoy the album and it still sounds current. You can get hold of a remastered version of it. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's really distinctive. It's really fresh. It's really bright. It's Mm. it's very kind of airy and spacious and... And it reached number 30, which wasn't too bad. Not too shabby. Yeah in the scheme of things. Um, and Hollow Hills? Did he play Hollow Hills at, at the concert or maybe not? No, I don't think he did. But one of the things that strikes me listening to Mask is Daniel Asher's guitar playing because he does a good rock god impersonation in mm. film clips and on stage Always and so Always got on. his sunnies on. Yeah, mm. I mean, he is a fantastic, you know, like he's mm. a, an archetype of that. But his playing is extremely delicate at times and extremely sensitive and never more than on this album. Mm. So Hair of the Dog, the opening song, listen to how quiet the guitar is. <laughs> it's really for someone who is a rock god type guitarist to say, yeah, I'm pretty fine about my lead guitar, you know, being <laughs> barely yes. audible. Um, I really love that. But can you turn me down a bit? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So no musician is... ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Peter, is that too intrusive on the yeah. vocal? Are, are tell, you tell guys okay? Please. Can you hear yourselves? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and on the title track, the kind of 12-string guitar melody mm. at the end is just beautiful. Mm. And, you know, again, counter to his image. So, yeah, that's one of my favourite things about the Mask album, which in some way contrasts with some of the earlier and later Bauhaus stuff, which is a bit more conventional rock guitarist or post-punk guitarist kind of mm. activity. Is this a good time to talk about how they looked? 
Yes. I think I think well, it's really well, important to talk about how they look. Uh, well, I just think they're one of the, the best-looking bands ever. Like, Apart um, from Echo and the Bunnymen, your other favourite. <laughs> Graham, no, have you got something it, you want to tell us? It, it's... <laughs> <laughs> Have I turned? It's a safe space. It's a safe space in here. No one will judge you. Just the two Haskins brothers, whilst weren't as remarkable looking as the other two, they were still quite good looking guys. Mm. Daniel Ash, as you said, Mm. rock god, an amazing look about him. I loved him as a guitarist, but I also just liked watching him. Mm. And Peter Murphy, you couldn't get a better front man than that, just in the way he looked as well as the the way he sounded. Well, he kind of pioneered that look a little bit, didn't he? I don't know that anyone was doing that kind of bird's nest hair before him, mm. uh, maybe Susie once again, but no male rock. Maybe the Cure. I'm not sure whether the Cure. I don't had... think Robert Smith was was doing that. Hadn't look gone at that full stage. Bird's Nest. It certainly, yeah, it yeah. certainly became the look. Nick Cave. Mm. It became the goth look, didn't it? The back combed black hair, yeah. stovepipe jeans, you know, a bit of eyeliner, all that sort of thing became a big, mm. a big look and a big and style. As you said, the cheekbones. <laughs> yeah, you can't buy those, can you? The cheekbones that you could cut glass with. That's right. Mm. And yeah. I mean, he could have been an actor. It's almost like he could have almost could have been mm. in TV commercials or something. Yeah. Well, well, he he was. But before we get onto that, what in James in, <laughs> in James Ovars? You think you're going to get a better segue than that, Graham? Yeah, I know it was a great segue, but I want to leave that one till last because there's three of them in James Ovars' 1980 comic book, The Crow, that made, became a movie with mm. Bruce Lee's son, mm-hmm. um, who died. Uh, yeah, mm. who, who passed away. The Crow. His character is called Eric Draven. And the uh, artist based his looks on Peter Murphy. And not long after that, Nick Gaiman, who had a comic book series on DC called The Sandman, there's a, a character in that called Dream. And his face is based on Murphy as well. So in those two, very iconic. Yeah, you, got, yeah. you guys may not know it, but if you're a comic Comics, book... you say. If you're a comic book nerd... <laughs> I, I, I know Archie and Jughead. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Yes. And Mr. Weatherby. He was great, wasn't he? <laughs> That's Mr. Weatherby. real comics. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Weatherby was based on Peter Murphy as well. <laughs> um, Are we going to talk about Bugs Bunny or not? Because otherwise, <laughs> I'm, otherwise out I'm out of here. Yeah. So just as an iconic yeah, yeah, front absolutely. man, people were taking notice of it. And then, actually, I'm not quite sure what year this was, but... Um, well, we're in 1981 at the moment, so somewhere around there. Yeah, it was around then. <laughs> uh, Peter Murphy was approached to uh, be an advertisement for Maxell Audio Tapes. The ad, uh, the... God, I shouldn't know this. I'm in advertising. TV ad we're talking about, the, the, not a, the, not the, a radio it a, ad. It, it was a TV ad, but... Um, you look great. How about doing this radio ad? <laughs> Your voice is terrible, but... <laughs> Uh, the byline for the, for the ad was break the sound barrier. Maxell, break the sound barrier. And, um, and the ad featured? And the ad featured Peter Murphy sitting in uh, quite, a large, quite a large comfy chair mm. and the stereo is in front of him and it's kind of almost blowing his hair back. Um, there's actually a few different versions of this and mm. if you ever see the TV ad, there's quite a bit of film of him moving around and it's mm. just mainly him being himself sort of thing. Mm. But it became quite an iconic image of him sitting in this chair, hair being blown back by the pressure of the sound waves hitting him. Well, it was uh, international, that ad. Well, it was yeah. featured in America. The Americans did their own version which didn't feature Pete Murphy. Oh, I thought it did. Yeah. So, okay. And so the actor in the American version, I think, became known as like armchair guy or something. So he wasn't a famous actor. Oh. And in the American version, I think he's so low down in his seat that you can't really see him above his, the armrest. Above the armrest, yeah. You can see the, see the top of, of the his chair. head. But, but I think the American ad was inspired by the Pete Murphy. Oh, it was the yeah, same. Yeah, yeah. It, was, think, it was the same I think thing, it was. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, that image has featured in what – Simpsons episodes. Yeah, when uh, Millhouse was playing Bonestorm. <laughs> <laughs> Google this, kids. It's worth yes. it. Um, um, which, which reminds me of one of my favourite T-shirts, which is the Millhouse Bauhaus oh, T-shirt. Oh, you, you sent me that. Yeah, which is... You should have that T-shirt. Yeah, the uh, Bauhaus image, as in the band logo, which is a direct rip-off of the Bauhaus movement logo. Wow, <laughs> And great. the Bauhaus band lettering is a direct rip-off of the lettering that was on the Bauhaus building in the city in Germany. Not Weimar, but where it moved to in mm. mid-1920s. So, yeah, Bauhaus, the band, got a lot of mileage out of the art and architecture movement. Uh, yeah, there's a T-shirt you can buy which features a Millhouse-ish interpretation of the Bauhaus symbol with the word Millhouse, spelled H-A-U-S, <laughs> uh, in the Bauhaus lettering. Lettering. And yeah. I saw someone wearing it in my local supermarket about six months ago. Wow. And I thought, I That's want fantastic. that shirt. <laughs> 
Um, I should say that this ad caused a bit of a split within the band too. They were a little bit unhappy with the amount of attention that Pete got for this. Oh, really? Is I this think, like Sting in the I police? I was going to say it was a bit like Sting in the in the Quadrophenia situation. You yeah. know, the, the rest of the band were a little bit annoyed about where this was going, I suppose, yeah. whether he mm-hmm. was going to become an actor or something. Yeah, well. yeah. So we're in, what, 1981? Yeah. Anyway, we've decided that Mask is the Love best. Mask. I think so. Bauhaus's output. I think so. And they had decided with the recording of Mask, I think, to David J said, we have left the underground, but we intend to return for Lost Weekends every now and again. <laughs> but they wanted to be big, mm. which was Shelly a little bit ironic because really. they, they never really recorded songs or singles that suggested they wanted to be big mm. prior apart to from, the end of 1982. Yeah, apart from, uh, well, I was going to say um, their next single from the following album, The Sky's Gone Out in 1982, was Spirit, mm. which yes. I think came out before the one you're about to talk about, which was also a great song, Spirit, fantastic song off that album. It was released in October 82, and almost an album a year from 80, 81 and 82. But you're talking about their cover of David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust. Um, gave them their third appearance on Top of the Pops, I believe, and gave them their biggest hit. Yes. As well. And this 15. was this was a faithful rendition. Yeah, yeah. And mm. I'm I'm going to come out and tell you that I had never heard Ziggy Stardust before the Bauhaus version. Really? It's a fact. I'd never. Wow. I of course knew David Bowie, but I didn't know that song. It, it is a faithful rendition, but I think Bowie's version is kind of an acousticy sounding mm. version, whereas this yeah, is all yeah. power chords. And a kind of like beefed up version of it. Mm. And the drums swing a bit more, the kick drums sort of swinging a bit. I think it's a great version. I, I, I loved it. I bought it at the same time as well. Yeah, well, well, it does have, have hit single written all over it, the yeah, Bauhaus yeah. version. Uh, are we a fan? Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I liked it. It was meant to number 15 in the UK. That's why you liked it or you were anyway? Uh, no, no, <laughs> that was just a point of interest. But yeah, I, I did like it. But it was more, um, it was just different to Mask. And mm. uh, I remember at the time when it came out, I was wondering why they were doing it. Mm. I think they, they did it because people kept saying that he was such a Bowie clone mm. and he sounded like Bowie and ripped off Bowie, like a lot of people were doing yeah, at the yeah. time. I mean, you know, we, this is a familiar refrain. Mm. And so I think they just sort of said, well, ironically, we're going to do yeah. a cover of this. So they were yeah. huge fans and there's no, no denying that. They weren't the only ones. Well, I'm not sure whether this ties in with them wanting to be stars or not, but this was around about the time that they bought... A a new vehicle for them for their tours, which was a hearse. So they were they were travelling around England, the four of them in a hearse. So hang on a minute, a but hearse you're... with four coffins or just one? <laughs> Who gets to ride in the coffin? That's right, because <laughs> yeah. that's the star. It's a good it's a good question. Yeah. It's a good question. Yeah, I'm not sure whether it was a mass murder hearse. So right, they were... so <laughs> it was like St. Valentine's Day massacre <laughs> level. It was just one person. That's right. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Okay, so Sky's gone out, yeah, 1982. Yeah. Oh, sorry, the only other thing I was going to say in terms of the image they were trying to project, so they're getting around England in a, in a hearse, but they insist in interviews that they've got a sense of humour. Right, so this could go either way, but apparently after the interview they did where they insisted they had a sense of humour, they did a gig and the crowd started singing, sense of humour, sense of humour. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so I think people do miss the sense of humour Bauhaus had because, mm. you know, they are quite sort of camp, I think, in a way. Like yeah. they're, they're so over the top, or P- Pete Murphy in particular is so over the top at times. Isn't the refrain from Spirit at the end, we love our audience? Yeah, yeah. So maybe that's, mm. at that, that single from 1982, maybe that's a reference to that. Nights I could be with you, always in the winds. Lift your heart to soaring sun, cut down the puppet strings. Yeah, well, it was, it yeah, yeah, okay. it's a, I'll, it's, I'll yeah, it's a weird one because the, the single came out a few months before the album mm. and the single is great. Yeah, the single's just a bit crisper and a bit shorter and, and yeah, the yeah. ending doesn't go on as long. It's great. And they didn't like it. So they re-recorded it for the album. And the album version is a bit of a mess, It's a bit, bit flat, yeah. It's a great song and it's so different from anything else that was out there at the time. Mm. A bit more acoustic-y and yeah. kind of whimsical. That's what I like about Bauhaus. They weren't afraid to use keyboards or thing. acoustic They've guitars. They've got a very things. broad sound, but they're only really known for this sort of one mm. thing. Yeah, yeah. And their influence is kind of based on that one thing, but it's actually really quite diverse. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which you'll hear from all of the songs currently playing. All we ever wanted was everything Funnily enough, um, Ziggy Stardust was released 
a month before The Sky's Gone Out. So, third, right, yep. so they decide for some reason to release a cover version of a Bowie song as a single a month before the album, which doesn't feature Z Stardust, is released, which commercially is kind of a strange decision, but a very post-punk decision to make. So mm. yeah, so The Sky's Gone Out comes out in October 1982, again, self-produced, mm. gets to number four, their most successful album. Their biggest album, album yeah. yeah. And I guess off the back of Ziggy Stardust to a certain extent, even though mm. it doesn't feature. No. Well, people didn't realise that till they got the album home. No, maybe they didn't, yeah. <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was a funny time chart-wise because this was around about the time that Glittering Prize, Simple Minds, Adam and the Ants. ABC. Uh, yes, Spandau, Tears for Fears, those kind of bands. And mm. then to throw Bauhaus into the midst of that with Ziggy Stardust and then The Sky's Gone Out, which is very kind of goth, mm. is kind of interesting. And maybe the fact that it was so different is what gave it commercial cut-throughs, I say. The difficult mm. third album. Well, I think that period, 82, is a real interesting year. Mm. As you say, there's all those bands, that new pop, that embrace of fun and glamour and enjoying life again. And then you've got Bauhaus and the other bands yeah, and yeah. the Q and whoever else going down a wormhole of despair. So it's kind of like there's your, there's your two choices, kids. Which way yeah. do you want to go? Mm. Or you can do both. Wormhole of despair you like was that? always. That was going to be your other band on the side. Yeah, I was I borrowing. Wormhole of despair. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so what do we think of The Sky's Gone Out? Yeah, I was going to say, at the time, I never heard it. Like I, I bought the, it. I had the first two albums, Yep. Mm. but I never heard The Sky's Gone Out until just recently. Well, mm. it starts with an Eno cover, which is a strange choice, yeah, yeah. Third Uncle, which Third is Uncle. an unusual track. Spirit we spoke about, it's a great song. I think Silent Hedges is also worth mentioning. And all we ever wanted was everything. Oh, I think okay. that's the I, song title alone is just. <laughs> I don't care what the song's like, but I love yeah. the song. But that's yeah, all yeah. we ever wanted was everything. My four highlights from that album were almost the same as yours. Third Uncle, Silent Hedges. Following the silent hedges, needing some other kind of madness. Well, I like In the Night and Spirit. But I, did you said also recently to me that you were really enjoying the um, the Three Shadows trilogy? The trilogy, mm. yes. It's, Pretentious it's, it's, as it was. It's the Bauhaus EV parts one, two and three. It's very oh. Bowie though too, isn't it? Yeah, it's got yeah. that kind of Bowie feel to mm. it. Yeah. Mm. I enjoyed the album. I thought the album was great. It was. I was probably starting to move away from this kind of music at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, you know, growing up a little bit, moved out of home. <laughs> Long Just stop wearing the makeup. Uh, well, you, I think you were still wearing makeup. At I was that wearing moment. a scarf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but look, it's not a bad album. I, I could still listen to it and still enjoy it. Of the three we've discussed so far, I probably think Mask still pips it for me. Mm, yeah. right? you, you were saying you were enjoying it. Yeah, I was really enjoying it. I've listened to it a lot over the last uh, week or so since uh, we've been preparing for this podcast. And uh, yeah, I don't know why I didn't have it at the time. Maybe I'd moved on as well. But, Maybe uh, your friends in the Young Identities hadn't given it the thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> since you seem to take your well, cues from it. Yeah, well, maybe, yeah, they'd moved on. Maybe they were... Being haircut when I'm. They were a scar band at this point. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it is, again, a little bit kind of goth by numbers at times, I think. As a collection of songs, I quite like it. But, but as a goth band, a major goth band, a major player in the goth mm, mm. You know, sphere, you can't yeah. say it's goth by numbers. They're setting the, the, the standard, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. But because Mask was such an interesting album, I think, and was a pointer to the kind of different directions they could have gone in, they kind of sucked the groove. Mm out of their music for this album and it just didn't have the kind of space that Mask You know had. why you didn't like it? Why? It wasn't as funky. Yeah, Because yeah. I know you're a big fan yeah, of well, funk. Yeah, well, funky. You like to get down. As you know, funky is my watchword. Absolutely. I've said, I've said it more than once. When you're not going down a wormhole of despair. <laughs> when I'm not a wormhole. Yeah, the two things. That get you I, up I, in the I morning. I enjoy doing <laughs> burrowing to the wormhole of despair and getting down. Getting on down. <laughs> and Bauhaus had left that behind. At mm. that point. Um, they yeah. also released Lagatija Nick, which was a non-album single ah. after mm. Ziggy Stardust. Do you want to talk about this song, Patrick? Yeah, because <laughs> I think it's a great song. And I, they didn't they play it at the Pete Murphy gig? Did he not play oh, it? I'm not sure. I think he did right. recently, which we haven't spoken about. But, yeah. yeah. Was I going to talk about Lagatija Nick? Yes. Um, when I saw you downstairs. Yeah, uh, I was waxing lyrical. Yes. It was, it was just because I'd worked out how to pronounce Lagatisha. Ah. Oh, okay. Um, you were okay with Nick. It's kind of like alopecia. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> it's apparently a Spanish 
term for the devil. Ooh. Not necessarily a, a translation, but... Close enough. Yeah, well, according to David Jay's autobiography, Who Killed Mr Moonlight, which I read recently, that was what Lagatija Nick refers to, mm. um, he also said that he felt it was a bit of a disappointing single oh. because he thought that they needed something a bit more interesting, a bit more dynamic or whatever, and it was a little bit flat. I quite like, like it. I think it's not a yeah, bad yeah, track. Yeah, yeah, I quite like it. It's better than Tear a Couple, Kill Colonel. <laughs> I'm How still trying to work like, out what that song's all it's about. It's just a headline from The Sun by the sound yeah, of it, Yeah, something like it? that, yeah. yeah. A, German, a German newspaper or a Belgian newspaper or something like mm. that. They, they just saw the headline and went, that's, that's a song title yeah. right there. Yeah. Can their I, can I their ask? German is obviously pretty good. Yeah. Because I'm not sure well, what German for... Well, they're called Bauhaus. Mm. They have to have yeah, a pretty good point. grasp of German. Because yeah. Sorry, Graham. Uh, can I just mention that Bella Lugosi's Dead was played at the beginning of the movie The Hunger? Well, I think that the band featured in the David Bowie movie mm. The Hunger. In yeah. ni- that came out in 1980, I think. 83. 83, was it? Sorry. Mm. And the band featured in the movie and yeah, the, uh, Pete yeah, the Murphy opening three was minutes. sang the song Inside a Cage. Yes. Mm. So that and so, YouTube. Yeah, so David Bowie playing a role. Because um, <laughs> he's oh. acting in a film called The Hunger. <laughs> that iconic role. It's an unusual I, thing to do. Am really? I going too fast? Yeah. Um, yeah, so he's at a club. There's this band playing in a cage and they're, they're playing, well, a re-recording, I think, of Bella Lugosi's Dead. Mm. Um, and it's yeah, and it's Bauhaus. And that was 83? In a cage, yeah. And, okay. The um, film was about vampires, The Hunger. Mm. The rest of the band saw the clip and they said, well, I can see my knee for one second and I can see some, you know, Daniel Ash is saying, I can see my hair mm. and <laughs> in, in one frame. They were a little bit miffed. bit miffed. And so then the Max Elad came up again. The old Max Elad, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there was, there was always a little bit of tension between the band members, which cut both ways, funnily enough, because Pete felt like he didn't get enough credit for being, you know, the person who, who everyone is interested in in the band. <laughs> His um, words. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> but he didn't write all the lyrics. Mm. I don't think he wrote much, if any, of the music. So he felt quite quite marginalised at times. I mean, David J wrote the lyrics apparently for Bella Lugosi's Dead, for instance, which is an extraordinary mm. detail. Mm. So, so okay. So what does Pete Murphy do other than look good? And you know, is he dispensable? He felt dispensable at times. So yeah, the kind of power struggle between Pete and the rest of the band was a pretty significant feature of their dynamic all the way through and yeah the opening three minutes of the hunger was a typical manifestation of that well can i just say that um on the next album burning from the inside um pete murphy wasn't well he uh, had pneumonia i think well i think um the other band members had to sing on at least two if not three mm. songs on the album yeah well he was in hospital when they were due to go into the studio, which is not where a paranoid lead singer wants to be. <laughs> but no. surely if you're in one of the leading goth bands of the day, singing your, your lyrics and your song from a hospital gurney That'd be doesn't perfect. get even more real than that. Yeah. Mm, I know? think it was a bit short of breath. <laughs> Still, if you Plus, mean it, you're going to I mean, I, I don't want to reference The Simpsons too frequently, but although Homer... Was able to sing opera lying down. That's right, lying down. So yes. Lying on a gurney. Was it on a gurney or on a bed at the Springfield Opera House, which bore a, an uncanny resemblance to the Sydney Opera House, if you remember the episode. <laughs> wow, this is turning rapidly into a Simpsons podcast. Yes, but uh, yeah, while Homer could sing lying down on a bed, Pete Murphy could. Uh, Pete Murphy apparently couldn't. Though so, he managed to sing on the lead single, She's in Parties, which I quite liked as well. Yeah, I think they recorded that prior to the album. Uh, it, 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 re- it charted reasonably high. I think it's a great song. It's a great song. Yeah. As a single, I think it's probably the only real single single that they ever released, mm. as in something that you'd think was kind of tailored yeah. to the top 40. That you yeah. might hum. Like a, cor- a chorus-y, yeah. like a version cor- chorus <laughs> Something that has a chorus, yeah. Sing-along kind of song, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, um, yeah, so apparently the band loved recording without Pete, but Pete was getting quite paranoid by that stage and... Daniel and David had recorded guide vocals mm. on a couple of the songs. I think mm. at least two of them, which is King Volcano and Slice of Life. Well, definitely Slice of Life and Who Killed Mr. Yeah, Mr. Moonlight. Yeah, and so Pete turns up and he's saying, well, well I'm going to play tambourine. I'm back, guys. 
Yeah. You know, we're good. We've done it. I guess he would have thought that he'd like to do the vocals on those songs, mm. but maybe he was out And they were like, um, can you play tambourine or yeah. something? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but he, it's did, not he did in. literally, he did literally say, when we play these songs live, I'm, I'm going to be shaking a tambourine, am I? Mm. So really the signs were there. Mm. Yeah. 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 Uh, one song he did sing on, which is Antonin Artaud, mm. the song about the celebrated uh, theatre yes. director, playwright, the playwright, poet, yes. you know, theatre of cruelty, a whole, lot, okay, a whole right, lot of yeah. things that this guy did. Died in a mental institution. And one of the lines in the song is, those Indians wank on his bones. It doesn't get any more goth than that if you can Im- you know, get that image in your mind. No, that's true. I think um, that sums up in many ways Yeah, no, goth thanks is all for bringing about. that to our attention. <laughs> well, anyone that's going to write a song about a lunatic that died in a mental hospital and references that, that's, that's goth. Yeah. Yeah. And they were very kind of serious, intellectual, studenty kind of guys. Like they did read a lot. They'd been inspired by by the Bauhaus movement. And, Absolutely. You know, so although it can seem a bit pretentious to refer to these things in song lyrics and so on, it was the times. Yeah, it entirely fitted in with their image, with their sound, and it was you know completely appropriate. And it was also one of the reasons why they were absolutely cruelled by the critics. But in general, this album, I didn't mind it, even though Peter wasn't singing on a lot of them. There's some good tracks I, on I, there. I liked Honeymoon Crew. I like got that, uh, that's mine, and I also like Burning from the Inside as a yeah. track, although that was quite good. And I didn't mind Who Killed Mr Moonlight either. Despite the absence of Pete Murphy's yes. vocals. Yeah, I think it, it's, a again, a worthy collection of songs. It's interesting. It's, it's not quite as dark mm. as maybe I would have liked. Do you think it sounds like a band falling apart at the end? Yeah, it's pretty unfocused as an album. Mm. Um, it doesn't even really sound like a band. It sounds like a compilation album of different bands to me a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't put it as our best Bauhaus album. No. Now, I would still, the way I see the four of them is that the first album, they certainly developed a style, but they were finding their feet. On Mask, they perfected their sound. On the third album, they moved away, tried experimenting with other styles. But on the fourth album, even though there were some good moments, I, I, it seemed like a band falling apart maybe, or at least nearing their end, mm. which they were. Yeah. Well, there was there was always a bit of a conflict, I think, Patrick, you were saying, between the three of them and, and him. Yeah, <laughs> and Pete. yeah. It was always a, a bit of a difficult relationship. Yeah, look, I think there was apparently, according to David Jay's book, almost like a clinical kind of paranoia from Pete. They really did need to go their separate ways, I think, and they did more or less break up on stage at the end of a brief tour, like a tour prior to the release of the album. It was, and this you know, is 1983? It yeah, came it was out July 83, so yeah. soon after that. Yeah, yeah, it was more or less simultaneous with the release of the album, which possibly didn't help the album's chart prospects. It reached number 13, which is pretty good for mm. an album by a band breaking up. But it is interesting that that album, uh, Burning From The Inside, came out... What, nine months after the sky's gone out. So mm. they weren't mucking around. It wasn't as if creativity was an issue. No. They hadn't kind of dried up creatively. It's quite telling that the three members of the band who aren't Pete Murphy duly formed... Tones on Tail? Yeah, to- tones, to- on- tones on Tail? Tones on Tail? Tones on Tail? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and subsequently Love and Rockets. Mm. So clearly they were good together and Pete was the, you know, the fifth or the fourth wheel. The yeah. fifth Beatle. Hmm. <laughs> in this band of four. They did release one non-album fan club single after this album as a bit of a thank you yeah. to the fans, The Sanity Assassin, which isn't a bad track either. Which is a song actually that David was disappointed wasn't on the album because it wasn't on the album, I think, because it was considered to be too much of a rock song. In his book he says something like, what's wrong with that <laughs> so, so yeah, he. I think he thought, in retrospect, that they were a bit kind of precious about not being too ro- rockist. So, in, in summation, <laughs> in summation, I was going to mention that in the nineties there was a band called Placebo, mm. and I always thought that that lead singer Brian uh, Malko is, is that his name. He sounds to me a lot like Peter Murphy, and Placebo went on to become a very successful band. Mm. 
that are played on you know successful rock radio stations around the world, like the one we're in at the moment. And it made me think that a lot of this is really about timing, isn't it? Yeah. Why would a band like Placebo become but, so big? But this goes back to what I was saying before. They were very influential on a subsequent wave of bands. Yeah. All the bands that we talked about, whether it's Nine Inch Nails, Jane's Addiction, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Pearl Jam, hugely successful bands. Far more successful than Bauhaus, but the influence of Bauhaus is in, in what they did. And it's mm. just timing, and I think that American market is always a few mm. years behind. Mm. Um, they were, you can't argue that they were doing something quite different at the mm. time. They were sort of staking out new territory. They weren't the only ones doing that. No. But I think when you listen to their stuff now, it's always easy to kind of make light of things. But at the time, it was quite different, and it had a different look and a different image and a different sound from, from a lot of other things mm. that were out there. And yeah. I would also say that, like post-punk itself, the ripples were far more interesting than the splash. Okay, hi. This is Graham, Patrick and Mark at the Factory Theatre in, where is it? Enmore? Enmore. In Enmore. We're about to uh, see... Marrickville. Marrickville? In, in a western city. I'm not going to go any further until we know exactly where we are. Apparently this is Marrickville. And uh, we have just entered the hallowed grounds of the Factory Theatre. We're about to see Peter Murphy live celebrating 40 years of Bauhaus. Uh, Patrick, are you excited? Yes. Mark, are you excited? I'm expecting big things. That's good. That's it. That's as much as I've got out of these guys.